Good morning. It is today is Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. You are listening to Red Sea Roundup, and I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm. And we have later on in the program a pre-recorded uh, interview with Dr. Thomas Hibbs, who at the time was at the University of Baylor, or Baylor University. And uh, we found out that on March 13th, he was named the new president of the University of Dallas, which is a very Catholic university. And it's where he went to school earlier. And he had told us a little bit about that he had something up might happen. And we just said we didn't want to talk about it. So when he talks about Baylor and all sorts of other things, just know that this interview was probably recorded about six weeks ago because that's when he had time. And uh, yeah. Good morning, Gene. Good morning. We're talking to our listeners, not only in the Brazos Valley, but our listeners up there in Central Texas, KYAR, and our listeners over in Palestine at KINF. We're saying good morning to all of you. Good morning. I just realized that INF is the an, uh, a uh, shortened version of infinity. So that is maybe infinity. To radio. infinity and beyond up the there. Infinity and beyond. And so up, yeah. we are trying to help the folks there in the Palestine area get to the infinity of life, which is with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Correct? Yes, indeed. And we hope that we can help them take a step in that direction, not only by listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio there at 98.3, but also attending the benefit dinner coming up April 25th, Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waco, Tickets still available, table reservations still possible, but uh, space is filling up. $25 for tickets, various levels of table sponsorship. Go to redsearadio.org slash benefit to find out more. And just to remind folks, who is the keynote speaker for that? Well, we're talking about bringing Catholics home to heaven, right? Right. And this is Tom Peterson of Catholics Come Home who wants to bring, especially Catholics who have fallen out of their regular practice of their faith, maybe they've been estranged from the Church for various reasons, bring them back to full communion and regular practice. They're famous for their commercials uh, on TV, radio, probably most famously uh, with Lou Holtz. Oh, yes. Tom is going to talk about how to be a more heroic Catholic in the everyday by... uh, just sometimes inviting somebody to come to Mass with you. And we also have another event coming up here in this area. There are a couple of people from St. Anthony's Catholic Church here in Bryan that have asked us to mention. And for those of you in the other areas of of the world, uh, this is an event that is really something that uh, is rather unique and that is they have Adoration of the Cross, I believe you said at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, Veneration of the Cross starts at 2 at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Bryan. And and, uh, that's just south of downtown, or south and west, I guess. Just on the other side of the railroad tracks, Yes, literally. And you can hear the trains come by Mm -hmm. during Mass. And then they have, after that, they have their live Stations of the Cross. Yes, which is an actual procession through the neighborhoods surrounding the church, uh, it's a chance to evangelize, and people come out of their homes and watch the procession. Um, handouts, flyers are given. Sometimes there are personal encounters that happen. It's it's quite a profound thing, and it is a very, very visceral way 
to enter into the passion. So it's it's an opportunity to uh, to go in a procession, and it's mm-hmm. also an opportunity to evangelize. And like I say, it's something that's fairly unique, and I think it's been going on for ten or fifteen years. As yeah, far and as it's I'm... and the parts are played by the St. Anthony's uh, youth group students. So the young the young folks uh, play the part of our Lord, Our Lady, the women of Jerusalem, Simon, Pontius Pilate, uh, some of the unnamed characters, they're all there, and it uh, brings it to life in a, in a very moving way, in a very reverential way. Another thing that uh, is preparation for Easter that uh, we've mentioned several times on the air is the going to the Sacrament of Reconciliation uh, before Easter. And I just want to remind folks that uh, most of the uh, communal penance ceremonies have already occurred. There's one left in the Bryan College Station area, which will be at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel on Coulter. There are two of them tomorrow at 10, and I believe it's 6. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there will probably be 10 or more priests there to hear confessions during that penance ceremony. Uh, other in your local parish, it's, it's always good, or the parishes surrounding you, wherever you are, it will be very good to look at the bulletin uh, to see if you're wanting to put this off to the last minute, because in many parishes, there will not be confessions heard after Wednesday of next week, and I think actually at St. Thomas, there are no Wednesday confessions because of Holy Week. Yeah. Uh, I checked downstairs. We're, in the, we're upstairs from the uh, uh, Student Center for uh, St. Mary's here in College Station, and I checked, and on the calendar at least it says that there will be confessions every day here at St. Mary's, and they start at 4.30 and go to 5.15, except on Monday, which is 3 till, or 5, not 5.10, pardon me, 3 till 5.10. If you want to take advantage of that, uh, based on what I have seen when I've been here at those times, you need to come early because there will be 30, 40, 50 people in line to go to confession. Yep. And once again, you're listening to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. Your host, Gene Wilhelm. Gene, Gene Wilhelm, Thaddeus uh, Romanski, your station manager. We're going to have a pre recorded interview in the next uh, part of the show with Dr. Tom Hibbs, who is no longer with Baylor. Baylor University. He so, is now the president of the University of Dallas. Mm-hmm. and used uh, to be your old stomping grounds up there in yes, Irving, we, Texas, didn't it? Well, we went to church at the uh, the church, at ch- what is chapel when we were there. It's become a uh, non-territorial parish, but uh, they're at the University of Dallas. And Now, what order opened the university well, the, originally? The two, uh, the, it belongs to the Diocese of, of Dallas, mm-hmm. and the two major orders that were there were the Dominicans and the Cistercians. They're yes. still Dominicans and Cistercians pre- teaching at the university level. So, okay. uh, and uh, you had people like, uh, golly, get me to lying now. Bec- uh, actually, uh, well, forget my, my, you know, when you, get That's to be, okay, Gene. when you get to be my age, you just forget all these things. But you didn't forget to give us a little bit of insight on the saint of the day right before we well, the go. The saint of the day, and, and I don't know about this because uh, I... It, I looked at my iMissile app today, and today it says... Is this, ble- is, this is the one that allows you to launch rockets on people, your iMissile Yeah, app? it is, yes. It, 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 uh, it's an app that you can get for your iPhone or your Android. And today, is it says, is the, the remembrance of Blessed Anton Frederick Ozanam, who was the founder of the, the uh, Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Indeed. 
And uh, he died at 40 from tuberculosis. Uh, he, in, in his 40 years, he, he accomplished a lot. Uh, he not only was a husband and father, uh, he has a Ph.D., I believe, in literature, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was an attorney, and he taught at schools in Paris, Lyon, and the Sorbonne. And in the midst of all this, oh, he my. founded what we today know as the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And he was doing that all in the midst of a— Oh, yes. Most, most, a lot, he had a lot to overcome because— There was uh, a revolution in France during right, that he time? Was, he was born in 1813 and died in 1853. Yeah. So, two uh, revol- he lived through two revolutions. Two revolutions. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know a lot about him other than he had a lot of struggles to yeah. get people to want to be Catholic yeah, after all I mean, the— those, those, And that was the growth of the— uh, positivist and materialist philosophies in, in yeah. France. So he was working against a lot. So, uh, blessed Ozanon, pray for us today. And uh, I want to wish you all a very happy Easter, and I hope that you get yourselves prepared. And on the other side, we will be talking to Dr. Tom Hibbs in a pre-recorded interview. I thank you so much for listening today, and I hope that you have a great day. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup, and I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and I have with me now Dr. Thomas Hibbs, who is dean of the Honors College at Baylor University. Uh, He has a very diverse background and is involved in so many things, and I just, Tom, I want to thank you for being my guest today and welcome you onto the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to Baylor University? It was a long and arduous journey, was it not? Yeah, and, uh, and an odd place for a Yankee Catholic uh, like myself <laughs> to end up here amongst the, uh, amongst the Baptist in the state of Texas. Uh, I don't know how much information you want, but I, I grew, was born and raised. I'm a cradle Catholic uh, in Washington, D.C., and then in the Maryland suburbs, went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, uh, and uh, spent a couple years at the University of Maryland trying to figure out what I wanted to study. I'm a first-generation college student. My parents um, didn't give me—they wanted me to go to college, but they didn't give me a lot of counsel about what it would be like and what I would study. And and in that um, in that period, uh, I went from being a business major over a two-year period to a literature and philosophy major and um, discerning uh, vocation to the priesthood uh, at, at that point and ended up at the at Holy Trinity Seminary connected to the University of Dallas. Uh, I only was in the seminary for a year, but discovered really the, the calling that I would spend the rest of my life um, uh, tending to uh, in, the, in the classroom at the University of Dallas, a school that um, 
that uh, really inspired me uh, because of the teachers and because of the rigor of the program. And uh, so I ended up getting a BA and an MA there, then went to Notre Dame for my PhD in philosophy. I uh, had the great good fortune to study with one of the of the great Thomas uh, of the 20th century, Ralph McInerney, uh, and taught at Thomas Aquinas College, uh, my first job after graduated from Notre Dame, and then uh, more than a decade at Boston College. Uh, and toward the end of that time was a, a department chair uh, in the philosophy department at BC, and um, something I'd never anticipated doing. I didn't think when I got interested as an undergrad in philosophy that I would ever do anything in administration, but I had some opportunities to to be involved in administration at Boston College and then was department chair. And at that point, realized that you're at, you're sort of as department chair at the bottom rung of the administrative hierarchy, and uh, you have very few resources, and you're, you're, you do really important work, but you don't have a lot of opportunity to build something. And Um, And I was really interested in having the opportunity to try to build something. So when uh, friends of mine, actually, there's one of the interesting connections, uh, Catholic Baylor Baptist connections, is that uh, David Solomon uh, was a faculty member at Notre Dame who taught me uh, when I was a graduate student is an alumnus of Baylor University. And David actually ran the the Center for Ethics and Culture uh, at at Notre Dame that Carter Sneed now runs. And David was the one who told me about Baylor. And many years later, uh, he had introduced me to people here and they were starting a brand new honors college. And I came down and interviewed. And the one of the funny things is that I didn't need a job. So I was honest with everybody about my vision of, uh, of Christian liberal arts education and got a very warm uh, reception from students, from faculty, from administrators, and so I came here in the summer of 2003 to Baylor University as the inaugural dean of the Honors College, and have been here uh, all, almost 16 years now. But you, that's not the only hat you wear, there, is it? No, I have um, I have a I have a distinguished professor position that that acknowledges or recognizes the work I do in scholarship and then in in philosophy and popular culture. Uh, distinguished professor of ethics and culture, and then I also run. Um, starting about five years ago, I began overseeing uh, a set of initiatives in Washington D.C. for Baylor University that involves student programs for for Baylor undergrads. Uh, it involves a um, uh, a series of uh, events that we run. Actually, we have an an ongoing collaboration with. Uh, one of the great Catholic public intellectuals of our time, Robbie George from Princeton, and he comes down and we do three or four events a year with him. We, we also uh, started this uh, initiative in D.C. with a collaboration with the Religious Freedom Project at Georgetown University, uh, which is a, an outfit that has since gone independent. It's now the Religious Freedom Institute in D.C., uh, but they do great work um, uh, nationally, but also especially globally. Uh, sort of defending uh, oppressed religious groups, uh, and uh, certainly not exclusively, but but especially uh, Christians. So that's not all. You were on sabbatical, was it last semester at the Catholic University of America as well? Right. I had a, uh, a sabbatical there uh, in the Institute for Human Ecology, which is a relatively new institute that's been set up there. 
Uh, Joe Capizzi in the theology department runs that, uh, and they've they've raised a lot of money for it, and they're doing a lot of interesting uh, interesting things there. But they were gracious enough to give me a spot there for the semester, so I could. Uh, it, administration is is a pretty taxing and distracting sort of job. You don't have a lot of time to uh, to think and to write, and so I was able to spend some time working on two books that I've been working on off and on for three or four years, and able to make really good progress on those. So I think they're they're coming close to being finished. But it was great. I mean, I was born actually in um, in Providence Hospital in 1960 in Washington, D.C., which is just a few blocks from the Catholic University campus there on Michigan Avenue. So for me, it was it was a uh, I've, I've grown to love Texas, but it was nice for me to get back to the, the area where I grew up, where I still have lots of friends. And and also it's a, a Catholic U is just a terrific university with lots of great scholars. And I got to interact with some of those folks, um, uh, uh, reconnect with old friends and, and make some new uh, friendships as well. And the crab cakes there are a lot better than they are in Texas. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. The Tex-Mex not so good, but the seafood is considerably superior. Uh, human ecology. That's a term that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of people, myself included. What does that mean, Tom? So, I, as I understand it, um, the Institute of Human Ecology at uh, Catholic University is is actually inspired uh, by uh, the, the encyclical. Uh, I mean, it's inspired by many encyclicals, but its its most immediate uh, influence was Pope Francis' Laudato Si uh, encyclical, uh, which the Laudato Si is, is language from uh, Saint Francis's great canticle, uh, praising God uh, for all the beauties uh, and wonders of nature. Uh, that that document, of course, was mostly talked about in the press because of what it had to say in the opening section about climate change. But the document is um, is really rich and deep, and it's it's in uh, it's the document itself is in pretty deep continuity with uh, both John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And I think what what they were doing at at Catholic University was saying that. Um, if we're going to talk about ecology, we need to talk about the uh, not just about the natural world, the environment, but we need to talk about the the way in which humans inhabit that environment. And that's not just the way in which we might, for better or for ill, impact the the, the natural world, the physical environment. It's also how we live as human beings. So. You can find this theme, and it runs from John Paul II. Benedict is especially strong on this uh, in Caritas in Veritate, uh, that that there can be no natural ecology without a human or moral ecology. And uh, and so I think the, the notion of a, a human ecology, the the way in which we cultivate in various aspects of human existence the uh, the conditions for human flourishing, uh, that is the uh, the focus of this uh, Institute of Human Ecology at Catholic University. You know, some people want, and, and as I mentioned in the press with Laudato Si, some people wanted to just yank out certain passages about the environment or about global warming. And it's quite clear, it's emphatic in the document that you really can't think about the environment 
unless you have a way of thinking about what human beings are and human beings' proper role in relation to one another, in relation to nature, and in relation to God, that big theological picture, which is at the heart of the Catholic vision of ecology, gets lost in the popular press very often when these issues come up, partly because they're not interested in it, sometimes because they have an agenda that leads them to ignore other things that that for, I mean, for, for example, Francis, when he talks about the throwaway culture, that's not just the culture uh, of, of throwing away things that then become dumping grounds and pollute the environment. The throwaway culture is also what leads us to, to treat human embryos as if we can do whatever we want with them or the unborn or the elderly. And, uh, and so I think at Catholic U, they're interested in, in restoring the sort of amplitude of the Catholic vision of, uh, of ecology, which is natural and human and finally divine. So uh, it addresses our whole concept of the throwaway culture. That just, that's right. And that's right. And that's a, I mean, Francis is quite clear. And in this, he's, he's often quoting Benedict and John Paul II, that our throwaway culture is, uh, is also connected to how we treat one another. It's not just about, um, uh, how we, what we do with the trash that we have and whether we're recycling or not. It's, it's also about the way in which we treat the least among us, uh, and, uh, and the way in which we're inclined to neglect, exclude, uh, and in some cases even eliminate, uh, the least among us for our own convenience and, uh, and profit. Well, it sounds to me as though you see uh, a lot of the things that Francis says as a continuation of what uh, John Paul and Benedict said, whereas some folks see uh, Francis as way off the edge somewhere and something completely well, different. Well, I, I mainly—and and one of the things I was dur- doing at uh, during the sabbatical was working on some essays and as part of a book on— the notion of beauty and ecology. Uh, Francis talks about this, but I, I, I think with Laudato Si, and I, I have actually written on this, that, that Laudato Si is in deep continuity with, um, with John Paul II and with, uh, with Benedict. And it's a really rich document. I mean, it's, uh, it's very much rooted in, the, in a medieval vision. Um, a lot of, the title obviously taken from the 13th century uh, saint, uh, St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscan order, who often gets misread uh, when he's invoked as part of the environmental movement. And one of the tasks of the document is actually to restore a proper understanding of Francis and a proper understanding of the Catholic approach to the environment. But the document quotes at length also from Thomas Aquinas, from John of the Cross, from Bonaventure, it's a uh, it's a document that draws very richly upon medieval and early modern Catholic uh, Catholic thinkers in ways that I think people might be surprised if they just read uh, sort of bullet point descriptions of what that document was about. Do you think that uh, part of the problem with understanding this is the fact that the humanities as a topic to be studied in school is being minimized in in uh, favor of uh, technology? I think so, uh, and there there are two ways in which this, um, uh, at least in which this happened. One one way is in schools, and one way is in is in the broader culture. Uh, but they these feed into one another. Um, I think certainly in schools, uh, colleges in particular, uh, you know, you you hear stories about 
foreign language programs being cut when they have budget cuts, sometimes large parts of English departments or philosophy departments being cut back. Um, and um, so that the element of the humanities, which is to help us to think about what it means to be human uh, and how we ought to live uh, in in regard to one another, to nature and to God, uh, that that that's not as much of a central part of the uh, of our education. I don't know if it's if in colleges it's so much that technology is being emphasized as uh, sort of immediately practical kinds of education. So courses in business and you know, it's, it's all good for students to take courses in business. Uh, that these things need not be mutually exclusive. But when um, uh, STEM uh, science, technology, uh, engineering, and math courses are are certainly uh, at the heart of a university. But when those other things start to eclipse or completely exclude the humanities, then you have trouble. I think outside the university and the culture, um, technology uh, has certainly eclipsed. I mean, what we what we wonder at and get excited about is much more from day to day what gadgets can do than it is the wonders of the natural world around us so that we're we're waiting for and excited about the things that the new iphone will be able to do that the last one couldn't or the thing that my new laptop that weighs you know almost nothing as i hold it in my hands and yet it can do twice as much as the as the desktop that i had 10 years ago i mean there are amazing things going on in technology uh, but I think we're we're increasingly inclined to have wonder sparked in our soul by our gadgets and technological advances rather than by the natural world. And I think there's also uh, the, the way in which we communicate now is in very rapid, very short sentences or, or phrases. And so the habit of kind of slow reading, I mean, we, we all see this as teachers, that over the past 15 years, and particularly the past six or seven, the number of students who actually have any kind of leisure reading, or even any kind of academic reading coming to college, has really, um, really shrunk. And um, if you're facing that as a, as a teacher, trying to figure out what you can actually give students and expect that they'll read, that hits the humanities in, um, in another way. But of course, the the um, the ultimate consequence of this is that, and here some of my work in popular culture is um, I see as relevant, but we lose uh, an ability to articulate to have a kind of rich vocabulary for how to talk about human life, and uh, and that's that's a bad thing, um, and we lose the ability to ask the important questions about why we're here why love matters, why truth matters, why friendship matters, why beauty matters. Uh, and if those, the asking of those questions is not fostered in some way, then I think young people have souls that become, the moral imagination becomes kind of jaded and, and contracted, and um, it, it shrinks the possibility for how we can imagine our own lives, how we can imagine the lives of those around us, and even how we think about God. And Baylor University is a university that tries to integrate all those things together, as I understand it. Yes, I mean it's a big, for it's a big private school. Uh, we're not we're in Texas, so everybody's always thinking about the big state schools like A and M and 
and UT and Austin. Uh, we're not anywhere near that size, but we're 14,000 undergrads, so we're a large uh, school that uh, has graduate programs and research opportunities. Uh, what we especially do, I think this is true of Baylor generally, but especially in the Honors College, is we're trying to help students to um, to give them a language through studying the the great text of, of Western civilization and even some non-Western text, but especially the great text of the West and the role of Christians in forming uh, the, the, the great literature that we have, whether that's fiction or uh, epic or whether that's philosophy or history, whatever it is, one of the amazing things for students is to see in every epoch uh, that Christians have been at the forefront in the sciences, in literature, uh, in philosophy, in the social sciences. Christians have been at the forefront and been leaders in shaping the conversation without ever sacrificing their Christian faith. And, and it is a kind of running assumption in our culture, particularly in elite elements in our culture, that if you're a Christian, yeah, you can make a lot of money, maybe you can run for office and be successful if you're in the right part of the country. But there's this sort of subtle assumption that if you're a Christian, you can't really be operating intellectually at a high level. But that uh, you can't really think and be a believer. That's and really not a place that, like Baylor yeah. is a place that that is is we're trying to produce counterexamples to that. Uh, that students who can think very deeply and in fact they can think better because of their faith. And uh, so so yeah, we're interested in integrating those elements that in a lot of other places have fallen apart. The, the, our culture seems to have forgotten that the university environment was born and nurtured in a Catholic Christian society and by the Catholic Church for the most part. That's right. As we've forgotten that hospitals, as we know them, really came out of, uh, came out of the Christian world and, again, the Catholic world largely. I mean, if you, if you look at social service industries, uh, historically, these were um, uh, these were were born. I mean, the the title of the document Ex Corde Ecclesia, out of the heart of the church, about the university, uh, that is a guiding document for Catholic institutions, is making precisely that point in the title that we wouldn't have uh, institutions of higher learning were it not for the church having given birth to these uh, in the, in the Middle Ages. Similarly, with lots of other institutions that we now take for granted, these all grew out of the, the worldview, the view of human nature, the view of God, the view of what we owe to one another, and in, and in the case of the university, the view of the human intellect as ordered to knowing the truth, both through reason and through revelation, uh, so that the, the natural setting, in a way, the original, and one might say natural setting of the university is, in fact, in the heart, in and out of the heart of the church. Baylor University in itself has a, a large uh, proportion of Catholics attending there, and, and uh, I understand a fairly significant number of Catholic professors on the staff. Uh, I know I, I interviewed Dr. Corey Carbonara about a year ago, and, and his story oh, yeah. is amazing. And can you address a little bit about the the how a Catholic can survive at Baylor and, and whether they're welcomed and, and just a little bit on yeah. that whole thing? Yeah, so um, I mean, there Catholics are the, in the student body the second highest um, 
percentage were in the, the mid 20s, I think, uh, of Catholic percentage of students who are Catholic. The, the Baptist population is actually only in the 30s. Uh, and that's, that's largely because a lot of churches that had Baptist on the door 20 or 30 years ago, no, I mean, they're, they're evangelical churches now that don't uh, explicitly identify as Baptist. So the largest portion of our student body is, is one stamp or another or non-denominational evangelical. Uh, but Catholics are, by denomination, the second highest uh, in the student body, and um, and there are there are a significant number of Catholic faculty. I think uh, sometimes people look at the Baylor faculty and think it's more Catholic than it is because we do have some really distinguished Catholic faculty. I mean, you mentioned Corey Carbonero's in film and digital media doing great things. Uh, we have John Haldane, who's uh, on was recently on a list of uh, among the top 50 Catholic, uh, most influential Catholic uh, uh, intellectuals in the world. And uh, he came from St. Andrews, where he was the first Catholic since the Reformation to hold a chair in, in moral philosophy there. Uh, and we managed to uh, persuade him to come to the philosophy department here. Frank Beckwith is in the philosophy department, who uh, who was raised Catholic and then became an evangelical. And then after he came to Baylor, he, he reverted uh, to Catholicism and as a, a really renowned speaker across the country. So by percentage, the faculty is nowhere near as large a percentage of the whole as the student body is, the Catholic student body is of the whole. But we do have some very significant uh, Catholic scholars here at Baylor. And you know, one of the things that, um, that I think is different about today's Christian world than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago is that there? There is a um, there is a, a kind of, at least in the Christian world, um, an eagerness to collaborate and learn from one another across denominational lines. This is I, I call this an an ecumenism with without having to pretend that we all agree about everything. Uh, you know, there's there have been ecumenical movements uh, that uh, and and probably some today as well that are motivated by just having everyone get along. And in order to get along, we've got to pretend that we don't have any differences. Uh, that's a kind of bad ecumenism that's sort of predicated on a, on a bad faith. Um, and what we have, I think, at a place like Baylor, there's a significant number of Methodists and Anglican and some Orthodox uh, and Lutherans is a kind of ecumenism that's deep and open but where we admit that we disagree about things, and those are serious disagreements. Uh, and so I think it's actually a very healthy and intellectually stimulating place for almost anyone from any Christian denomination right now to be at a place like Baylor. Uh, when I came 16 years ago, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm the first Catholic who's held a position at the dean level or above at Baylor. Uh, and there, there were some grumbling around the edges about hiring a Catholic, but mainly what I've seen is a great receptivity. Uh, I mean, one of the things that Baylor was trying to do and has continued to try to do is to move in to the upper echelon of American universities, but maintain its Christian faith. And, you know, the schools that have moved up uh, and maintained their faith at all, sometimes for better, uh, sometimes not so well, 
have been Catholic universities. So I think they realized at Baylor that they were going to have to draw upon other denominational and educational experiences than simply the Baptist one. And so, as I mentioned, when I came here and interviewed, I, I mean, I gave a vision of liberal education that basically comes out of my experience at Catholic schools like the University of Dallas and Thomas Aquinas College and Boston College. But was, I mean, what I was drawing from was John Henry Newman's famous uh, book, The Idea of a University. And I got a warm reception to that because they saw things there at Baylor that they thought they could learn from and try to implement here. So I think it's a, um, I think it's it's uh, it's a, a really interesting place, and there's a lot of vitality to the Catholic community. We have a wonderful uh, parish, uh, St. Peter's, here on campus. Uh, Father Daniel is the pastor there, and he does a great job with the students and the faculty. So there's a there's a really strong sacramental life uh, and prayer life for the students, and then a, a lot of faculty that Catholic students can go to. Uh, to be mentored and for for friendship and guidance. Now you you've done a lot of things other than just there at Baylor. You are a highly recognized author, both of some very scholarly works and some things that talk about, uh, for example, films and culture and how that how that all integrates. Uh, would you care to comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, I started out. And uh, at the University of Dallas and then graduate school at Notre Dame, working mainly in in classical, ancient, and medieval philosophy. So I was I was doing my best to master the texts, or at least some of the texts of Saint Thomas Aquinas. There are an enormous number of them, and and of course he presupposes a familiarity with uh, ancient thinkers like Plato and Aristotle. He presupposes some knowledge of the Arabic tradition, and certainly of thinkers like Augustine and Anselm. So it's a big task to try and get to the point where you can even read a thinker like Thomas Aquinas intelligently. It's just a, it's a really difficult, uh, and you need to learn Latin to do it well. Uh, and so I was really focused on that in my education, um, and also interested in some debates in contemporary ethics about virtue, uh, and, which I find really fascinating, and where Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas have made uh, a resurgence, have witnessed a resurgence. Um, and I wrote books on, on Aquinas, uh, edited and introduced a book of, of Augustine, um, and was teaching at Boston College while I was, while I was writing and doing work in these, in these very scholarly areas where I was writing mainly for other scholars, graduate students, uh, and, um, really trying to, um, to, to establish myself in the field as a, as a serious scholar. And meanwhile, I was teaching at Boston College where we had philosophy departments, a large department, and we had something like 300 majors. I think they still have a very large number, which we had a PR person there who had done a study who said there was no other school in the country uh, that was about our size that had anywhere near that number of majors. So I had a lot of opportunity to interact with undergraduates, and um, was they were bright students. Uh, and many of them, philosophy was a second major. They weren't going to go to graduate school or try to get a career out of philosophy. So they're majoring in, in business or a foreign language or whatever it might be, pre-med. And they were taking philosophy courses because they were interested in the subject matter as a kind of 
broadening of their horizons in a, in a humanistic way. Uh, but I was also interested in the way that students could easily sort of avoid, they could read very interesting texts from Plato or Aquinas or whomever, but they, they, they have strategies for sort of avoiding, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking about the implications for their lives. We all have these strategies, right, for avoiding how some truth could, should or could impact our lives. And um, so after I got tenure, I published in scholarship what I needed in order to get tenure, and I continue to do scholarly works, but I also had an interest in, in film and in television and thought that, um, that I might work on that. So I, I ended up writing a, this book called Shows About Nothing, uh, which was about nihilism in popular culture, and it, it moved back and forth between philosophy and film. And I taught a class uh, based on that book at Boston College for a couple years that was quite successful. I had over 100 students in the class and uh, moved back and forth between film and philosophical and literary texts. And my goal really was to uh, partly to get the students to become more reflective about what they watch. Uh, and more critical of it because this, I mean this was this was around the year 2000 that I was doing this, and students are now on screens. They're on phones now, but they're on screens even much more than they were back then. And I was concerned that they were passively just taking in lots of images without thinking about them, without reflecting critically on them. So to get them to think about film. And television in a critical way was, I hope, to develop certain kinds of habits in them, but then also to get them to think about the way in which all the stories that are presented to us, uh, in particularly in film, because there's a kind of sustained narrative there uh, in some TV series as well, uh, have implications for and presuppositions about human life. There are presuppositions about what counts for success and failure. There are especially presuppositions about the things that it's appropriate for us to laugh at or not to laugh at and to laugh at in different ways. Sometimes things are being presented to us that we're supposed to join in laughter of ridicule or mockery. Other times it's laughter where we're laughing with people and enjoying something together. So to get them to think about the, the sort of philosophical implications of what they're watching. Uh, and then I've, I've done reviewing uh, pretty consistently a film since that that early 2000 uh, period when I was working on the book. And that's a way for me to to uh, write short things. It's not like writing a book, so I can write a thousand words and hit send and it appears on a website somewhere. Um, but it's, it's also a way of connecting with a wider public uh, in a way that's accessible, that makes some of the ideas that I really labor away at for my scholarly books translating those into a different language where it's accessible to people, just ordinary people who aren't philosophers, but who think about things and are interested in, in important questions that we all share as human beings. So that's been a kind of wonderful sort of side uh, vocation that I've had uh, writing about film. And it's, it's fun to write about film uh, and to, uh, to think about what's going on on film, even if it's a bad film, I sort of get a vicarious pleasure out of writing review about why the film's so bad. So, uh, so I found that a really enjoyable uh, side kind of, uh, not quite a career, but a, a kind of avocation. Tell us a little bit about how your interaction with the media, because we've so far we've talked a lot about things that sound like 
you're very Catholic and work a lot in Christian environments, but I noticed that you also have appeared on several NPR programs and other things where the secular media looks to you to help to interpret some of the things that are going on. Right. Right. I've done some of that off and on. I was doing more of it when the books, uh, I, I wrote a, the shows about nothing book and then a book called arts of darkness, which, uh, was about, uh, also about film. Um, and I did a lot of interviews and I, I still do some occasionally on these matters. Yeah. I mean, they're, um, they're obviously I'm, um, I'm not, uh, as I would with you or in a setting where I'm assuming, uh, some pretty deep shared assumptions about, about God and religion and, and the nature of human life. Um, you're you're trying to find angles in uh, in the wider culture that you can at a minimum get people to think about things in ways that they might not otherwise do it. It's it it seems to me that the the real task with media and with the arts today is for for Christians in particular is to um, is not so much. Uh, I mean there are there's a kind of movement which followed the success of the passion of the Christ, where there've been a number of sort of explicitly Christian films and they're, they're fine. Uh, I don't think those films do much to, uh, to awaken things in people who are not already disposed to think that what's being presented is true. And, and that, you know, that, that's, um, not everything has to do any of these things, but we do need some art and some place in the media where we're connecting with people on things that we all share as Americans or as human beings, but we're trying to get them to think about things, see things in a different way. And that's, that requires a kind of indirection. In a way, what I was doing with the study uh, of nihilism, and I've written a lot about that. I mean, it's a, it's a fancy word that comes from a, a Latin term, nihil, which means nothingness. But it's a it's a sort of philosophy or way of life that says there's no ultimate purpose or fundamental meaning, uh, and there's no real basis for our distinctions between good and evil, true and false. What I was doing when I was working on that and trying to pick up examples of this in our culture was really to get and started with my students at Boston College, some of whom were seriously Catholic, many not, many sort of culturally Catholic, uh, but not really engaged, was to to get them to see that a lot of the assumptions that they have um, in their thinking actually lead directly to nihilism. They lead to the complete denial of truth and meaning. And I remember students being shocked when, when they followed this out and saw that this was the case. And if I had tried to present to them directly the truth of the Catholic faith or the existence of God, there are places for doing that, particularly in a philosophy class, they, their, their defenses would have been up. So one of the things I've tried to do with media and with film is to use these films that are popular in the culture, uh, TV series that are popular in the culture, say a, say a series like Breaking Bad, which was a really popular, really well done series a, a few years ago, featuring a Brian Cranston as a character who um, who's a, 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 a very successful scientist, but then doesn't pursue it, ends up teaching high school in a miserable school with lots of kids who don't want to learn. And he gets a cancer diagnosis and decides, that's it. I've tried to play by the rules. I'm not going to play by the rules. And he uses his chemistry skills to become 
the the greatest meth dealer in the Southwest. Uh, the the thing about that series is that it shows in really remarkable detail what it's like for a character to go from stage to stage to stage, descending further into evil. And you can see this. I mean, it's an enormously popular show, but you can actually demonstrate to people by pointing things out in the episodes that show the way in which one vice leads to another vice, the way in which pride and envy feed wrath, and uh, and this cycle begins, and the way in which he makes important choices along the way that send him further away from the good and further into evil. I mean, taking something like that, and there are lots of other examples of this, is a way not of directly presenting the truth about God, but of showing the implications of avoiding the truth about God. And sometimes that can be a way of shaking people up that gets them to think a little bit, and then they might be a little bit more receptive to to the larger, more direct teaching. Okay, so uh, I think Thaddeus has a question he wants to ask you. Great. Uh, Hey, Tom, I'm curious about the the Breaking Bad series. Um, I've always wondered about that as as an taking that as an example of. Do you think that uh, is that a sign that there are there is still some level of um, basic morality in Hollywood that they would create a show like that to show this descent into evil? Or is it better to see that kind of media as really um, a fascination with uh, the glamour of evil? What what is that? What is the the fact that yeah, that kind of a show is produced? Do you see what I'm saying? Is, yeah, no, I I got exactly what you're saying because there's there's an awful lot in Hollywood, and this sort of peaked I think in the '90s and and the early parts of this century. You know, in 91, for example, you get a film like Silence of the Lamb that right. wins the Academy Award. Right. And that film is a, a presentation of the glamour of the evil of Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so there is an awful lot, and there, there are lots of examples every year of Hollywood sort of celebrating these evil character types. It's, it's a kind of nihilism where the only thing that makes sense is to deny all codes of good and evil and live according to your own desires, which is what what someone like Hannibal Lecter does. I, I the reason I like Breaking Bad is I I think it's not that. I think it it um, and I think the the uh, the folks who made it actually in the end said you know what we were showing is uh, the way in which this character does gradually descend further and further into evil. The interesting thing that they do is that they show at each stage a kind of lingering humanity, or they they pull us back into cheering for. So the Brian Cranston character, Heisenberg, will do something awful where you're just about to completely give up on him. And then in the next scene, there'll be some really obnoxious character whom he kind of demeans in some way that makes us feel good and cheer for him. So they're, they go back and forth on this, but they're also indicating to us the way in which we can be seduced by evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one other thing on that series, which is that um, in in the end, I'm not going to give the the ending away if people are there are people who haven't watched it yet. But in the end, in the last episode, he finally 
acknowledges why he's been doing what he's been doing. All along, he's been saying, I'm doing this for my family so that when I'm gone, they'll actually have money. He's got a, a, a son with some physical disabilities. He's got a new baby. So his original motivation is allegedly to make money to give to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the last episode, he finally admits what his real motives have been. And the, uh, the, the creators of the series said, you know, we always asked ourselves what would happen if he was ever honest with himself about what he was doing. And they said we had to admit the series would be over. So that so that the other thing they were working with there is that is that progress and evil is also predicated upon a kind of self-deception and a a systematic deception of others. So I think in in that case with Breaking Bad, and I think there are I think, say, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman films are like this, too. There there is a reckoning with evil that shows how it can seem glamorous. But in the end, evil is shown for what it really is. And uh, so I'm interested in those examples in the culture where that actually breaks through. I don't think that's the dominant way of presenting evil. I think what you said is right. Most of the time, evil is treated as if it's entertaining or glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, Thank we're, you. we're just about out of time. We've got about a minute or a minute and a half. Have you got about a minute's worth of what a summary of, of what you'd like to tell our audience in particular, and then we want to talk a little bit about your website so they can go somewhere to find out more about you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think that with, um, let me just stick with the, the question about media. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think, first of all, we need to develop a kind of temperance with respect to uh, our screens, our TV, our, our videos, our phones. Uh, we need to develop habits of silence um, and uh, uh, that are even apart from prayer. Uh, I mean, we should certainly pray, but but we also just need habits of silence and being with other people. And uh, our technology is invading everything. And then when we're on the technology, we need to become more reflective in ways I've suggested about the stories that are being presented to us, more discriminating, uh, better able to sort the good from the bad. Uh, and then I think, you know, how we conduct ourselves if we are on social media, I think there are so many dangers on social media now with this kind of tribalism where people are ganging up on one another. And while we want to advocate uh, certain things, defend certain things, call certain things out as being unhealthy and even diabolically evil in some cases, I think how we do that as Christians and especially as Catholics is really important, that that we need to do that with a spirit of goodwill and charity uh, and not in a spirit of denunciation and being part of the kind of tribe mentality that wants to gang up on people and destroy them through social media. Uh, I think it's a real temptation of our time because we sense the, the fragility of any kind of shared good. There's not much left in our culture right now that we all share. And the way we act on social media, I think erodes that even further often. So we got to fight the good fight, but we got to do it in a way that has good humor and charity toward others. Uh, and that's another way of being reflective about how we use media. Tom Hibbs, I thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, if you want more information on Tom Hibbs, his website, I believe, is Thomas Hibbs, H-I-B-B-S dot org. 
and you can uh, do a, an internet search on him and get more information on him than than anybody deserves to have. That's great. All all my books and all the articles that I've written, particularly the the popular things on film and so forth, are all on there if people are interested in reading more. Okay. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And to my listeners, as always, I tell you, with choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. Since you wake up this dead man walking, shake off rumors and